This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Shaoik. Just a little over a week ago, on the 30th of December last year, it was actually the 30th death anniversary of the late canto pop singer Anita Moi when she passed away from cervical cancer back on uh, back in 2003. And this was amid an outpouring of grief from her fans, of course, and uh, a lot of heightened conversations about cervical cancer at that time. Unfortunately, 30 years later, this disease is still the fourth most common cancer and continues to kill one woman every two minutes worldwide. And the World Health Organization has recognised um, ca- uh, cervical cancer as a public health um, concern, of course, but also recognised its potential to be eliminated and has laid out a strategy to eliminate cervical cancer worldwide as a public health problem where all countries are aimed to reach an annual incidence rate of only four cases per 100,000 women or less. But how is elimination possible when it is still projected that there will be 700 cases of cervical cancer and 400,000 deaths in 2030? So joining me to help me discuss this question and also look at what Malaysia needs to prioritise and whether we will be on track to meet WHO's targets. Our Professor Dr Wu Yinling, consultant gynaecological oncologist from University Malaya Medical Centre and Dr Murali Munisami, Managing Director of the National Cancer Society of Malaysia. Prof Wu and Dr Murali, how are the both of you today? Thank you. Thank you for having us both here on January Cervical Cancer Awareness Month. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Happy New Year and always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you very much, uh, as I mentioned. And uh, for our listeners, if you have questions, thoughts, your own experiences that you'd like to share around this area, this topic of cervical cancer, you can call us at 03-7733-2900, WhatsApp or your mobile number at 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. So January Cervical Cancer Awareness Month, a great time to um, have these kinds of conversations to remind people of um, what is within reach for us. And Prof, cervical cancer, uh, we have heard it being said that it is a preventable, even a curable disease. Now we're using the term elimination for it. Can you explain more, uh, I guess, big as well as a micro picture when it comes to how it affects women and, and what uh, outcomes women can hope for? Right. Thank, thank you, Xiaoyi. So whenever we hear of a, a global vision, we tend to think it doesn't relate to me. So let, let me put it or individualize this. If any one of us have any young children, young girls, or we have women around us, what do we need to do to ensure that they are prevented from getting cervical cancer or they can be treated effectively if the disease is diagnosed earlier? Really, there are three things that we need to do. Very simple. First is to ensure that our girls are vaccinated against HPV, human papillomavirus. And for the longest time, this has been done in schools and which we will touch on later on. So young girls to be vaccinated with the HPV vaccine. Secondly, for women of reproductive age, 
particularly those who are above 30, they now no longer need to go for annual pap smears. The World Health Organization has said that you need as few as two HPV screening tests a lifetime. And the third component is to make sure if you're one of the individuals who have an abnormal screening test, you will then not be afraid. You will then go seek help in many of the hospitals available in Malaysia to see a specialist for further follow-up. So three steps WHO have put in bigger terms that 70% uh, of women are screened, 90% of girls are, are vaccinated, 90% of those with abnormal screens are treated. So that's the big picture for elimination. Morally, the fact that we know what can be done um, three seemingly um, straightforward targets um, with goals to achieve. But why is there such a huge, still such a huge burden of mortality? Uh, what kind of inequities um, exist today that um, stop girls and women from being able to achieve that promise? So I think the challenge uh, is that with, with Malaysia, um, a lot of what we have is centered around the urban population. Um, this is including the fact that a lot of our urban population is very health literate. People know about cervical cancer, but they're like, there's very little um, awareness when, when as, as Prof uh, was saying just now, um, the idea is about, it, this is not important for me. This story has got nothing to do with me. It's got to do with every other person except me. Uh, you know, so that, that internalization of their own risk kind of uh, perception is is very lacking. So despite, for example, the Ministry of Health having screening uh, in, you know, um, every single uh, clinic, uh, government clinic available all throughout the country, um, that there's, very, there's been very poor uptake. Of course, um, it's not really uh, something that's very straightforward, like, you know, um, oh, there's screening, people should get it. There's, there's this mix of, one, people don't have the kind of risk uh, assessment and their self-risk assessment is very low. And second, uh, the fact that within this uh, larger rural population or remote populations, we start looking at those who come from the low income or lower middle income. And for them, really access is, in, is, a, is a big, big issue. Big issue in the sense that um, clinics don't open beyond office hours. For example, uh, nobody's quite uh, talking to people about vaccination of the groups of uh, children who, for example, don't go to school um, or, or children that, that drop out to actually become single mothers. They fall out of the school system and they when, when they're not within this conventional uh, track that most of us, like upper middle income, middle income people go through, they, they just unaware of this whole worldview around them. And so when they get the disease, when they get cervical cancer, for example, a poor girl, say in an Orangasli village, she's going to be affected a lot more worse be simply because of all these factors, financial, socioeconomic access and otherwise, compared to someone who gets it in Kuala Lumpur, for example. Hmm. So, Prof, taking those um, that 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 kind of uh, the context of uh, once we start to zoom in and look 
at individual communities and we disaggregate, um, you know, what these targets can achieve. Where does that put Malaysia in terms of being able to achieve this elimination goal? I I think Malaysia has all it takes. It's it's. I've been very optimistic about this, and I've always said this: if we got our act together. There's no reason why we cannot vaccinate every single adolescent girl or 90% of them. We have all the facilities that it takes to do HPV testing through PCR. Look at our efforts when it came to COVID. Look at how we got together to make sure that everyone had the opportunity to be vaccinated, to be screened. Look at the PCR facilities. That I mean, there were many other weaknesses, but... When we got our act together, we could do that. And thirdly, Malaysia is fortunate enough in that we have government and private facilities whereby we can get uh, women um, treated if there's abnormalities detected. I, I want to go back to this issue about screening. I, I've, I find it very difficult to understand both personally and and. Um, as can public health people in general, the health-seeking behaviour. We talk about access to screening. Uh, in my experience through, um, through charity work, even when you bring, and, and Murali will know this because they do all these outreach programmes so often, when you bring it to this doorstep, it's free. There's someone to do it for you. There's still this inkling or this reluctance to go for a screening test. And perhaps we need to understand a bit that a bit better. Why do we not screen or why are we reluctant to have something that potentially can save our lives or prevent the C, big C, when it's there at our doorstep? That's something I still don't understand. Morally, you might know that I, 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 I can't. What are your thoughts, Morally? What have you observed? So as Prof says, and, and unfortunately, you're always, um, you know, the, the normal curve of distribution of population is always going to be such that about 50% of the population believes that risk is something which is, uh, which is something that they should mitigate. So they should take steps to mitigate their risk in terms of health. You know, I should get vaccinated. I should go for screening. So within this, this 50%, and then it starts to drop along that scale until you reach the the end of that normal curve and at the end of the normal curve you you there's disbelief there's skepticism there's this uh, denial and uh, quite a bit of mixed i would say pseudo religiosity uh, involved as well uh, in this you know the, the idea that this is all destiny this is all fate you know so there's no point in us going uh, forward with this so there's there's it's always going to be the, the the most difficult to move that the needle from that that little 10 10-15% in the end. But what uh, Profu uh, and, and most of us are working on is trying to get even that 50% to basically get off their backsides, you know, and, and move forward. From the outreach programs that both of you are involved in, both National Cancer Society of Malaysia and Profu through um, Rose Foundation, where you um, go out through program Rose to offer HPV screening to especially women in hard-to-reach communities, right? Um, do you find that at 
at least you are removing uh, a few barriers already in being able to directly engage with communities. Uh, and in speaking to the women from these communities, hearing from them, um, what other elements can you then you know, include in larger screening programs, do you think? Prof? Yeah, th- thank you for this. I, I've learned a bit more, but I still have so much more to learn. So when we go to these communities, they they we bring the screening test to the communities so they don't have to go to any clinics. We go to their, their places of worship, we go to their flats, their community centres, their schools. So and and we give them a swap and we ask them we teach them how to undertake their swaps and the results are delivered to them by whatsapp to their own mobile phones so no inconvenience in all intents and purposes very convenient for the women themselves but i've personally experienced a situation where I'm there with someone who has never screened before. I'm persuading them with every single ounce of energy and persuasive power. I have, please have this. This is usually a few hundred ringgit, but it's free. No, no, tak nak, tak nak, tak nak. And, and I think, I, I suppose it's like me avoiding the, you know, in supermarkets, avoiding those people who come to me with uh, credit cards or something. It may, maybe it's that same type of behavior, but anything that you've offered to me, I, I'm not gonna take it so easily. So I mean, on a on um that's a lighter side, but maybe and perhaps this is what we need to address. It's the fear of what if the test is positive. Now you need to prepare me, the woman who's in front of me, you need to prepare me if I get a positive test. I'm not going to have to leave my job, my family, use my my, my savings to get this sorted out. I'm someone who's well, and you're asking me to take a test that could potentially wipe off all my savings, take my job away because I'm not absent from my job, and things like that, I believe we have to address them a bit better. Is it also because ultimately, even though you're a woman, you're a trained healthcare professional, but you're not one of them? And when it comes to addressing and engaging with diverse communities, do we need voices from these communities to share these messages? Do you know how scared I was? Do you know how scared I was when I had the screening test done? When I was when I had my screening test done, I'm thinking, is it gonna come out tomorrow? They told me two weeks, but it's two weeks and one day. Why isn't my result out yet? So that fear, once you make once you've put your coin in the basket, really there's no taking it back. You've done it already. So that's the fear I believe we have to remove um, or, or educate women, not just in cervix cancer, but in diabetes screening, cholesterol screening, breast screening, is that if we screen, we can do something about it. We can improve your life. That's why ethical screening is extremely important. Screening follows this criteria. There must be something that can be done about it. You can cure it. It must not cause more pain and uh, more more um, harm. So there are rules to screening and therefore we must follow those uh, rules and we must make sure that we address the fear a bit better. We've not done that well. 
All right. Let's continue this conversation after a quick break. Um, there's also um, that continuum to treatment uh, to cover as well as HPV vaccination. Have we really been doing well? Um, where do we need to catch up? If you have questions or thoughts about cervical cancer, please call us 03-777-32900. You can also WhatsApp our U-Mobile number 018 <clears throat> I'm speaking to Professor Dr. Wu Yinling, a consultant, gynecological oncologist, and Dr. Murali Munisami, Managing Director of the National Cancer Society of Malaysia. We'll be right back on BFM 89.9. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Xiaoik. On the show today, we are discussing whether Malaysia is on track to eliminate ca cervical cancer according to the targets that have been laid out by the World Health Organization. Joining me on the discussion today, Professor Dr. Wu Yinling, consultant gynecological oncologist from UMMC, and Dr. Murali Munisami, Managing Director of the National Cancer Society of Malaysia. Our lines are open 03 if you'd like to call to share any thoughts with us or questions, you can also WhatsApp us at 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. So we talked about the importance of um, not just making screening tests available, but understanding the barriers and the anxieties that stop women from accessing the screening. And of course, also uh, being able to connect women with treatment if they have any sort of um, negative results in their screening. Morally, um, how is that picture looking? How many women in Malaysia are screened for cervical cancer uh, and are or not able to receive treatment? And what might be some of the gaps there? Okay, and again, I mean... I, I I hate to sound like a broken record, but we actually don't have really accurate national data on this, you know, because these are things that we actually don't really, uh, how to say, capture in a holistic manner. A lot of our data is very still very focused clinically. Uh, so uh, I, I'm just going to kind of share with you our own kind of experiential data, qualitative data, if you make it so, and uh, looking at, a bit, at it, right? So... Uh, if you if you really went along this this um, tier of T20, B40, and then your M40, um, within your M40 itself, I think there's about 30% of the M40 have challenge to access services for treatment. Um, we're talking about treatment very strictly, yeah? Um, in terms of the access to public hospitals, uh, services where there's um, a gynecologist, uh, you know, and or even uh, obstetrics and uh, obstetricians, gynecology services in the in the public sector in a way that they don't need to wait for a long time in between getting scans, getting diagnosed, getting treatment. So, but within the, the B40, I think that number will climb to about 50 or 60%. So um, within the T20, I, I don't think there's an access problem. I think we come back to the issue of whether acceptance uh, and willingness to actually uptake of treatment where, if and when they are diagnosed. So that's a different discussion altogether. But the, these are the numbers as in, as in how they say it. And, and uh, within this, there's the really marginalized, though I, I would say that if I could use the term T, uh, sorry, B10, uh, you know, and, and that last that last 10%, nobody even knows what's going on. 
So that's really how bad it is. Yeah, those are significant numbers. Even if it is just uh, NCSM's um, experiential, uh, sort of their own data, prof. That means even though we can do really well in vaccination and screening, people are sort of falling off the cliff, right? Um, after they've been screened. Correct. So from um, the work I do in the Rose Foundation, which really tries to work on the basis of 90% follow-up, I I can tell you our figures because we do have a sort of a screening registry. In Malaysia, what we find is that if we screen 100 women, only about 6% will need some sort of follow-up care in a hospital. means that they have abnormal screening results. But the work and effort to put in to help these six women to reach a hospital to attend their appointment is phenomenal. We have a contact centre. We write letters for them. We make the appointments for them in the hospitals, in the government hospital that's nearby. We get a date for them. We try to connect them. And even in those circumstances with high-level personalisation, navigated care, we still get about 30% of them that will need to be persuaded multiple times. So in terms of follow-up, yes, we are seeing 90% of those with abnormal screens being followed up, but only one in three of them will initially call you and say, okay, I've got an abnormal result. Tell me what I should do. The other 60%, we, we have to put a lot of work. So to do that type of background work, imagine if you multiply that at a population level by the government. What do you need? You need accurate live data that is really as live as a banking sort of a system whereby every dollar you remove, you, you cannot have Excel sheets or Google documents that are stored. You need live screening registry whereby our Ministry of Health can then link the data with the private practitioners and the GPs and say, okay, woman X has been screened. Please, other facilities, you don't need to screen them anymore. Don't waste your resources. And if it's positive, women X will be seen in hospital Y. So this ability to track needs an infrastructure that is built and managed and an investment by our government and Ministry of Health. But you're absolutely right in that example you used. Banks can do it. So we can do it, right? I mean, it's a woman's life of less value than the dollars and cents we move. Well, okay. Perhaps I don't want that question answered. <laughs> don't ask questions you don't want the answer to it. Uh, I think we're really, I, 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 think, I think healthcare, you know, um, healthcare is so slow behind everything else. You, you just look at simple things like Shopee, right? You order something, it tracks your package all the way to your doorstep, you get grab food. Everyone can use it. Anyone can use it. And there's, it's so seamless. Why can't we do that for health? Yes, I understand there's data protection, but you know there are ways to ensure that we can look after our population effectively with the resources that we have. Malaysia is an upper middle income country. 
we should be able to look after our population. Uh, we are aiming for universal health care. It can be done, but we must invest in the infrastructure. Morally, um, a lot of NCSM's work is in helping um, low-income uh, patients uh, 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 access treatment, right? So where else are we seeing underinvestments when it comes to treatment? Unfortunately, um, uh, it, it's I, I can know I can name one no one particular area like we are underinvested across across the board. Unfortunately, so things like um, see we often always talk about the medical professionals, and uh, you know um, I think we've seen how we are systematically trying to not develop or you know we we systematically trying to disincentivize people from going into careers in in uh, clinical medicine this has been going on for a while hopefully uh what is this it gets addressed but not only that there's there's a bigger nightmare around allied health so like specialist nurses um, uh, who who work uh, in in very specific areas uh medical assistants uh, there's a whole pocket of uh, of people that actually make sure that a treatment and or, or a screening program actually can take off and run and work, uh, or a, a screening or a treatment program, and we actually don't have the human resources to be able to do that in a comprehensive, significant manner. So leave alone the buildings and the expensive machines, because really. Cervical cancer, as as Prof will tell you, it's not entirely too much a difficult disease to treat, and it's not expensive if we catch it early, like like most things. Unfortunately, we we don't have as much manpower, and and you know all our manpower is is uh, very gradually uh, drifting away, either to Singapore, the UK, or to you know. Um, even worse, they become TikTok influencers. I mean, it's not a bad job, but you know, it's it's a waste of this like highly trained medical professional. Is what I'm saying. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. But even uh, within the private sector, for that uh, the pocket of perhaps M40 or T20 patients who access treatment in private sector, what are the challenges that they face, Prof? Um, so I, I would say in terms of um, cancer care, what we should focus on is what I call value-based care. So how do you make, make the most out of uh, limited resources? I think if we don't look at that properly and um, in, a, in an equitable way, what you will find is that a lot of resources being used either out of pocket or through insurance will be focused on very um, interventions that may not bring as much value. Let, let me tell you what happened in high-income countries during the COVID periods where the hospitals were all stretched, right? Even countries like the UK started to ask their cancer services, what is it that I need to do that's important, that I need to triage? Um, so they started to say, okay, surgery for um, curative surgery for cancer should be prioritized. Maybe perhaps palliative uh, procedures um, should be should be, you know, we, we shouldn't focus on that too much. So when we talk about limited resources, we should ask ourselves, what brings most value to amount X? If I have just 1 million ringgit, what should I use that 1 million ringgit for? And that's what we should be uh, focusing in terms of uh, policy. Malaysia is very good. You know, if you look at Klang Valley, in terms of, we just have to relook at how we do things. 
Let me give you an example. In Clang Valley, when you talk about PET scans, there's only one or two PET scans for the public. Whereas there are about 14 to 20 PET scans in Clang Valley in the private sector. But if we look at financing mechanisms and perhaps look at ways in which we can share out these hardware, right? I think that the, the public will benefit. And if you think about who owns all these private hospitals, aren't they government-led entities? So there are ways to actually share resources to benefit the greater public, but that requires clever economists to look at this. And speaking of what the private sector can do to level that playing field, uh, and, and we're talking about ensuring that at the end of the day, each individual patient is getting the best value, right? Insurance providers, what are some issues uh, or challenges that you're seeing when it comes to uh, their coverage of cervical cancer treatments? Uh, perhaps Prof first and then Morali, if you want to jump in. Okay, so... I'm going to talk about cervical screening first of all. So we now know the signs, the evidence shows that HPV testing is the most effective and um, screening method, superseding pap smears. So if you look at high-income countries, they've moved away from pap smears and are now using self-sampling. Oh, sorry, HPV testing. And countries like Australia have even moved to self-sampling, which means that a woman is allowed to choose um, the choice, have the choice of a doctor taking a sample or herself. So HPV testing. Now, why this test is best is because we now know that HPV is a causative agent for cervical cancer. And so the signs have shown that you need HPV, high-risk HPV, to develop cervical cancer. That's why we know that there are vaccines that work and now we have screening methods at work. Let me give you an example of insurance and remuneration and, um, and sort of working together with a financial institute. For my colleagues who work in the private sector, this is the common practice now. The gynecologist will do a pap smear. The insurance company will say, can you please do an HPV test? The HPV test comes back as positive. The insurance agent then or company then tells the gynecologist and the patient, sorry, we cannot compensate you or we cannot reimburse you for any care after this because you have a sexually transmitted disease and therefore it is uh, associated with some sort of behaviour or I don't know what archaic sort of policy it was before and therefore they won't reimburse a woman. This needs to change. Abnormal pap smears are caused by HPV. HPV testing is now the most evidence-based and effective screening method and we cannot penalize the woman or the doctor for doing the right test. Morali, your thoughts? We, we are, I think, what's what's really needed, as Prof says, is uh, we need to transform the way that we're looking at um, this as so I, I, I like to use the kind of air quotes, sexually transmitted disease. So like in the end, uh, we are looking at a lot of loss of life. 
And of course, even if I looked at it in a very unidimensional manner, the payouts from insurance, even if they weren't paying out for, uh, for example, uh, for for the cancer itself, they, they, because it's um, a cancer which is so-called caused by a sexually transmitted disease, you have a, a lot of payouts which come from debt. Right, so it's actually a huge loss to the industry by itself. So there, there are quite a few people in the industry who are looking at kind of removing this kind of um, uh, idea uh, and and swinging it in. But of course, uh, we we're not as fast. Um, they're not as fast as we would like them to be. We 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 want it yesterday, you know. Mm. So you're actually yeah. not saving any money. Um, yeah, yeah. You know. it's actually a financial loss. Yes. And, so, uh, um, cervical screening, Xiaowei, is one of the best um, um, disease models that have been modeled in low-income, high-income uh, countries, whereby it says that if you do the right test and you do the right intervention, it is cost-saving for the country and for the people who pay for the intervention. Very well demonstrated. Mm. And at the end of the day, if we are talking about what insurance providers are looking at, um, less payouts uh, in terms of the uh, um, uh, reimbursements and the claims that will be made. We'll go for a quick break and come back to look at um, HPV vaccination, uh, something that we haven't really touched on yet, which Malaysia has um, a strong success story, but um, how much do we need to push now to be able to reach those targets to eliminate cervical cancer? Professor Dr. Wu Yinling, consultant, gynecological oncologist, as well as Dr. Murali Munisami, managing director of the National Cancer Society of Malaysia, on the show with me today. We'll be right back on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Xiaoik, and my guests on Zoom, Professor Dr. Wu Yinling, Consultant Gynecological Oncologist, and Dr. Murali Munisami, Managing Director of the National Cancer Society of Malaysia. We're discussing whether Malaysia is on track to eliminate cervical cancer. And so to really answer that question, HPV vaccination is such a big part of this and has been, I mean, just the development of the vaccine was so groundbreaking in um, being able to um, prevent cervical cancer. Malaysia also was very groundbreaking in starting its school-based HPV vaccination program for, if I'm not mistaken, 13-year-old girls back in 2010. Um Morally, what have we achieved in this vaccination program? Are we anywhere near that target of 90% of girls fully vaccinated by the age of 15? Or did we lose ground during the pandemic? So, <clears throat> so we, we did um, well during the initial years until about 2020. And uh, even Prof, Prof will, will share that she's got lovely data to show that na like nationally, that the prevalence of the HPV serotype that causes the most um, like uh, driver of um, cervical cancer actually started coming down. Now, unfortunately, we, we've backpedaled a bit since 2020 uh, due to, I think, um, there was a globally a lack of the availability of the vaccine. There was supply issues, logistic issues. We also diverted funding away uh, to focus on COVID, uh, including COVID vaccines. So that's that's all kind of uh, uh, ended up in a, in a mess. I think uh, recently Dr. Zaleha announced uh, that there's about 800,000 girls that, that are actually kind of still stuck in the limbo, having not 
uh, have the vaccines as yet. So I know MOH is, is ramping up uh, the school program this year in 2024. So hope you, hopefully we'll see a, a, a good and efficient catch up. And, and of course, uh, NCSM has uh, kind of um, put in a program where we hope to be able to tackle that 10% as well. Do you want to talk a little bit about your program? I understand it's called Leaving No One Behind. What are you trying to achieve? Absolutely. It, it, well, I, I, I'm going to be cheeky and tell you the idea is not to leave anyone behind. Uh, and so uh, what is this? Um, really, um, the, the idea is um, we, we noticed that while girls who are in schools actually get the vaccine, there's about 10% of the population who who just because of their own kind of social circumstances, uh, as I was telling you, uh, teenage girls who are in, in reform centers or prisons, they don't get the vaccine. Girls who are uh, from rural and remote communities, they don't get the vaccine if they don't go to school. Um, uh, whereas a single mothers, if, if they're not within the schooling system, they don't get the vaccine. Disabled girls, who are uh, not within the schooling system, who are ill and at home chronically ill, all these are members of the population who never get the vaccine. And it's not because, uh, you know, um, they don't want the vaccine. It's just that they, they, they are unable to actually ever get access. So this 10% is actually a very critical part of those who will uh, be needed to complete the en entire cohort, so as to speak. And in in if, if you looked at it in a, in a justice manner, uh, and, and we spoke about it, about social justice and equity, these are the people who most need the vaccine for it, for where it will be most of benefit. So we're, we're, we're starting this program where literally we're going to 222 parliamentary constituencies, every single uh, constituency in Malaysia, picking up these groups, working with local uh, partners on the ground, NGOs, communities, uh, agencies, government agencies, and uh, actually trying to make sure that these girls get a vaccine in their arm. Will you be able to address the other, that 800,000 girls who are still in limbo because they missed out during those pandemic years? Oh, okay. So we've been assured that the Ministry of Health, um, uh, actually in the budget, uh, the Minister of Health, the previous uh, Minister of Health, our immediate uh, predecessor, Dr. Zaleha, did uh, affirm in Parliament that they're putting in a program to do the catch-up in 2024. And Dr. Zoll, Dr. Zulkifli, the, the current health minister has also kind of very uh, affirmed that and is, is very sure that, that there's a catch-up program coming on to catch those 800,000. So we're hoping that they will be addressed as well to kind of support that move. We're going to, and, and I think uh, Prof Wu's team, Rose and others, will also we'll, we'll be running big communication campaigns to kind of amplify the voice around this as well as to kind of support overall the, the hesitancy, the, the uptake, the willingness, the noise around this. Prof, um, your thoughts on what else Malaysia is doing uh, to achieve the vaccination targets? I think very important um, is to, I, I think we're so lucky to have um, NGOs like NCSM who will leave no one behind, a good government program that can target everyone who's in school we do need to get the school program and the catch-up program back on track so that it won't be 1.2 million next year who have missed their vaccinations. 
Malaysia should be able to because we have a very good um, school uh, health team and that was what made it possible back in um, 2010 and we've had one of the best success stories um, in the region. It was, uh, I hope that Murali and myself, when we go back to the international realm, we'll be able to say that we've caught up now. Mm. Um, a registry will be extremely important as well. As I say now that, you know, you've, you've, you've sort of gone beyond or you'll be going beyond the 13-year-olds, which is Form 1. So now when we get back into the vaccination program and catch up, we have to go up to Form 4. What if they've stopped school at Form 3, which many people do drop out? So lots of these things need to be considered. Or um, is it easier then to target the standard 6? Because actually, scientifically, there's no reason why we cannot or should not vaccinate a young girl at the age of 12 when they're at standard six, then you get a broader coverage rather than waiting for them to be at form one. So there are ways to do, do this and you just need to think out of the box a little bit and how to capture this. Done with Ministry of Education, it can be done. Mm. And the fact that Ministry of Health will be moving to a single dose regime will help a lot, right, Prof? makes it easier. So so just to give your listeners some context, when we first started the uh, or when the governments when governments globally started vaccinating uh, their, their young people, it was with three doses. Then in 2016, um, data from trials and from observation from all these countries showed that two doses were sufficient. Then very recently, in terms of some observational study and early sort of what we call randomized control trials, they've shown that a single dose is now sufficient to protect girls and boys from HPV infection. In a public health setting, that's very important because don't forget, many countries have only the opportunity to touch base with the individual only once in their lifetime. So without a registry, without school, imagine you have to plan and coordinate going to that same child six to nine months apart to make sure they get a vaccine. Therefore, a single dose is extremely um, useful in terms of a public health program and countries like Australia and the UK have moved to single-dose vaccination, but they do include the boys as well. Mm. Uh, we actually had an extensive conversation about this prof together with Professor Margaret from Cambridge. And uh, the podcast is available if you want to look up why is one dose of the HPV vaccine enough, where we also talked about the value of vaccinating boys there. So I think that's, um, I, I, I hope our listeners will check out that podcast. But um, if I can just sort of uh, get each of you uh, to share with our listeners um, because the work that you're doing and CSM uh, with your Leaving No One Behind program and other outreach programs for Rose Foundation, the screening that you're doing under Program Rose, what do you want from the public? Um, what kind of support would you need, whether it's individuals or the corporate sector, um, morally, um, how can people support your work? Sure. So, Leaving No One Behind is a very specific program. 
we we managed to swing uh, uh, the donation of the vaccines, about three hundred thousand doses of vaccines, and um, and it's going out in a very equitable manner to every single underprivileged, uh, vulnerable girl across the country in a systematic manner. Unfortunately, while the donations themselves were for the vaccines are close to about 90 million ringgit, um, the, the vaccines themselves aren't going to quite walk themselves into the arms of people. And, you know, it's, it's going to re require quite a lot of manpower, logistics and um, a community effort. So what we what we're asking for the public is one for members of the public, those who are inclined to support volunteer physically for the program in your areas, please go ahead and and do so. Um, uh, we'd love to have you with us. For those who are able to contribute to the program, um, basically we've we've costed this. It costs about thirty ringgit to put a dose uh, of HPV vaccine to the arm of a girl and save her life, prevent her from uh, pretty much ever picking up cervical cancer. So if you could put that thirty ringgit uh, to help uh, someone, uh, that that would be really amazing. And of course, our corporate uh, corporate Malaysia. Uh, we, we, I, I'm just going to say we need help. Uh, so, you know, that's always, you know, um, that we've always been um, lucky enough to be supported by our colleagues in the corporate sector who, who really have a heart, and and we're we're making that call out again. So we we that's the website running. It shows updates. It's at it's HPV dot cancer dot org dot my and and you can actually pick up updates about what's going on where is it going where's the movement how many people we're vaccinating hpv dot cancer dot org dot my where my. you can pledge 30 ringgit even at the very minimum just 30 ringgit or Absolutely. more of course and prof wu um for program roles uh, what would you like uh what kind of support would you like I, I think um, besides besides uh, monetary support, we would love to work with different communities because it's all about trust. So we can't go into any community cold and say, hey, have this screening done. What we'd like to do is work with, uh, we've worked with parliamentarians, we've worked with different NGOs, but we need a point of connection. We need women leaders. We need um community leaders will bring us, will introduce us to their community so that we can screen their women. No one's going to accept strangers in their community and say, hey, yes, do this swap. So we'd like to work with them that day. To find out more, uh, you can also visit programrose.org. Yes, that's P-R-O-G-R-A-M-R-O-S-E dot O-R-G. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts with me today, Professor Dr. Wu Yinling, Consultant Gynecological Oncologist, and Dr. Murali Munisami, Managing Director of the National Cancer Society of Malaysia. This has been Health and Living on BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, Download the BFM app.